You are listening to You Heard It Here Second, Episode 61. The podcast is produced every Monday night and airs every Tuesday morning. More information can be found on our website, DerekAndSteve.com. I think it's a step in the direction of sports gambling, which, I is, so which is why I like it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a degenerate gambler. Derek and Steve present... I don't watch a ton of monster trucking. That's a fact, a fun fact about me. I don't watch a ton of monster trucking. They're not always their primary target, as mm. far as the audience goes. I would yeah, hate. To, started, I would so. hate to work for yeah. an organization whose prime target was people who enjoy getting up for work. <laughs> <laughs> like after they've just had this huge moment, there's all these fans going crazy. Your wife's outside; she's crying, and there's so much stuff going on. <laughs> you heard it here second. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 61 of You Heard It Here Second. I'm Derek alongside Steve. Steve, what's going on? Two what? weeks Two weeks off. Two We're weeks back. off. We're yeah. back. Welcome back, Derek. Yeah, welcome back, Steve. H- how does it feel? Feels good. Feels good. What's going on? Not much. Not much. Not much is going on. Not much. Uh, we have a jam-packed episode we today. Do. Um, so we've got, we're cramming two weeks into one episode. Um, we have huge news on the BC front, huge news on the guest front, and a lot of sports going on and some pop culture sprinkled in too. So we've got a crammed episode. So let's just jump um, right into it. Yeah. So let's just jump let's... in head first with the biggest news in Boston College history over the past couple of months. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Um, Boston College hires a new athletic director, Martin Jarmond, um, from Ohio State. So Derek, instant reaction. So in- my instant reaction to the hire is that I love it. Um, this is the first hire since I've been caring about BC hires, which means basically since we were close to graduating because they, they had the same athletic director and coach in place for the most part that we were at BC in uh, Gene Filippo and uh, Frank Spaziani mm-hmm. being the AD and football coach. Um, so for most of that time, it was the same uh, people in those positions. Then we, we were intrigued by shortly after we graduated, I think it was our senior year slash first year out of college, they hired a new athletic director and a new coach, which was Brad Bates and Steve yeah. Adazio. Brad Bates was 2012. Right. Yeah. And so, oh, okay, so that was actually before we graduated. Yep. Um, and so, you know, we were interested in those hires. This is the first hire that BC has made, and you can also sprinkle Jim Christian in there as the basketball head, uh, head coaching hire. This is BC's first hire that I've been thrilled with since since we've been paying attention. Oh, yeah. Um, it's easy for us to criticize people they hire. You know, pretty much anybody they hire, it's like, okay, you can cherry pick his resume and say like, well, this isn't impressive. This isn't impressive. What's he really done? You know, unless you're poaching someone from Alabama, like how am I going to be confident that he's going to, you know, revitalize the football program? Martin Jarman has about as good of a resume as I could realistically hope for in, yeah. a, in someone that BC is going to hire. It is a, it, it's universally praised as yeah. a great hire from across the board, from the ACC, from all uh, Martin's former coaches and former colleagues. Yeah. Um, he's only 37 years old. He will become the youngest eight. Well, he is, he is now. He, he was he was um, introduced today at noon. Mm-hmm. It was Monday at noon. Um, so he's the youngest at 37 years old. He's the youngest AD in the Power Five conferences, mm-hmm. um, which is a huge turn of events for BC, who's very conventional in terms of who they hire, very yep. safe. Uh, and this is a... I think a great hire. This, I'm all in too. It's a great hire. It's a, it's sure you can c- categorize it as a little bit of a risky hire, but I think that when you're in BC's position, a hire that isn't risky is not a great hire. The bar is so low. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, the bar's low, and all, and you just and, and if you're shooting high, there's no there's no hire out there that isn't a risk. I, I mean, 
if there is no safe candidate out there that's going to come to BC as a safe option yeah. and have a really high upside. That's not the way this works. Yeah. And so, um, yes, he's only 37 years old. It's a risk in that. He's a young, he's a young leader. Uh, he's never been an AD as the head AD. He mm-hmm. has, has never held that position. So it's a risk in that uh, context as well. But uh, it's not the other end of the spectrum where this is some guy who's just been floating around athletic departments and now you're going to – randomly give him the crack at fame you know it's like this is the deputy athletic director at ohio state number two basically right hand man for the football for their for their ad i believe gene smith is is his name Mm -hmm. uh, ohio state's ad and and uh martin jarmond is the guy for ohio state football so he's the right hand man for the athletic director and really in charge of the football program yeah um and i will say most as most ad's are brad bates was certainly a people person but um, Martin Jarman has already reached out to the Heights. He reached out to Boston Globe, Boston Herald, even BC Interruption, which is just a, a mm-hmm. BCI sports blog for BC. And so he, he's very, very engaged already. He sent an excellent email to the community. I know it's probably proofread by yeah, the BC yeah, community course. anyway. But already he's showing that he's in. He's 100% yeah. in. And, and Brad Bates did this as well, so it's not um, abnormal for someone to do this. But it's really good to see a young AD already reaching out to alumni already reaching out to people who truly care about Boston College sports. Um, so I'm, I'm thrilled. I, I couldn't be happier. This is, this is a very good pick. I mean, and time will tell. I mean, he's, he's young. If, we, yeah. if it's a home run, we, get, we lock him up, and we've got him for as long as we want. Certainly, so yeah. I'm, I'm very happy with the hire. And like I said, the bar is so low, a risk is barely a risk. Yeah. Well, like what's well, the right. worst that can yeah. happen? We. We don't win yeah. an ACC game yeah. for basketball and football again. Yeah, the, like the, who cares? There's no risk, and like the, there's really no risk, especially when you look at the job that Brad Bates did here. I mean, you can't really point to many things and say that they they improved. Like really, from an athletic department standpoint, except for the Bates's tenure. Um, facility. The facility. Yeah, they did get the facility upgrade approved. So yeah. the two hundred million dollar facility. I mean, but that's at the very end of Bates's tenure that got approved, and it, it's not going to be done for a while. So. So yes, he did get that uh, get that moving. Um, one thing from the email that you mentioned, just th- this line is a little cheesy. I mean, it might be. It's again, like you said, it's it's read by the editors, and, yeah. and I'm sure this is you know planned out to to have like a little bit of a punch with it. But you know, the ending of the email says, "I came to Boston College because I believe that we can win, and with your help, I look forward to doing just that." I I just love that that he's not. Because I feel like He's we've not seen like, all too often, like I'm gonna make a positive impact. Yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna improve student life, and like you know, I'm gonna do what's best for no, these kids. No, we've got all that other stuff but covered. Like, <laughs> that stuff is a prerequisite. Okay, like doing all those things as an AD at BC is a prereq. Like yes, you have to make a positive impact on the student at student athlete yeah. body. That that's you're the athletic director. You yeah. have to do that. The thing I- we need most right now are wins. Yes. So use yes. the word because like I don't think Brad Bates ever said he would like oh we're disappointed in the outcome or like this no, that and the other. like no. We need to win yeah. football games. We need to win basketball games. We need to win championships in, in other sports. Yeah. Like we need to be competitive. Yeah. And if you're not actively saying that, you're kind of just hiding behind this. Right. Oh, there's so you're many more things. Yourself there's to so fail. many. Yeah, yeah. There's so many more things that go into being an AD. And yes, there are. There are. Right. But, but they're all expected. But you should. But that like, is one of them. Getting yeah. wins is is part of the job description, yeah. and you should be able to say it out loud. And yeah. I'm glad Martin did. Yeah. And so I, that that part of the email just jumped out at me as I was very happy to see that because it's like 
I just feel like it's all too common with us that that the AD or, or the coach or whoever joins doesn't want to commit himself to winning. He's like, you know, that you know, winning is tough. Like we're not going to even go to that word. Yeah. But but we're going to make positive impact and we're going to do good things and we're going to you know start improving and and the word improve might be used. And, yeah. You know, no, he's. Com- I believe that we can win. And that's the goal. Like that, I mean, that's that's his he main also job. Men- he also mentioned today, um, and I think it was kind of a, a a political answer, but he said he wants to make sure that there's at least one top ten team on our schedule for football, mm-hmm. and he also wants to make sure that we put on games that we can win. So he's going to try yeah, to find this balance. balance. And yeah. and at Ohio State, it was probably easier to do that balance, yeah. easier to make that balance. Right. So we typically do play a top ten team every year anyway. Yeah. So I'm not sure how not that a, not a top ten out of conference team. Correct. So, correct. So I don't know if that's what he meant yeah, or right. or what. But either way, I think he gets it. I he think does, for yeah. football he gets it. Like oh. that's that's a that's some someone saying something like, All right, I understand we need to play better teams in order to be better. Like in order to, to be ranked higher. We also need to win some some stinking football games. Yeah. So we'll find the balance. And I think that's someone who understands football talking about what he's going to do. And I really, really appreciated it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, it's one of the big things that we can, we can look at for, for his experience from at Ohio state and, uh, being responsible for the scheduling is a huge, is a huge calling card for what he, what he is, because that's one of the most common complaints you hear from BC football fans is that the schedule, the scheduling has been terrible, terrible, I mean, just straight up terrible. Last year highlighted what has been a terrible run of scheduling for BC. Um, ironically enough, we do have Ohio State on our on our schedule in in one of the upcoming years. I think it starts in two years or Good. something. Um, and hopefully, he can get us to be more competitive by the time that happens. But um, either way, I think uh, extremely good hire. Obviously, these type of hires don't show themselves for a little while. It takes it takes some time. He's he's probably pinned against the wall to not. Uh, firing Steve Adazio at this stage, I think that that's going to happen next season. Yeah, that'd be a very bold thing to do yeah, for him and, to come and, in and, and do. And, and I, which I'd be probably okay with, but I think it's fine with this big of a risk yeah. not to come in and shake it up right away. Yeah, so, like so. On one hand, I would be totally okay with firing Steve Adazio, but I'm not sure I'd be okay with him coming in guns blazing. Like I, exactly. That. I don't want him to to have a reputation immediately. Yeah. Like, I think a lot of the the yeah. athletes like Adazio. I, I just want to. Yeah. Give him a chance. Yeah, and hiring Adazio is such a big risk right up front for yeah, him. Yeah, that I, I'm fine he's, letting it yeah, ride. It's yeah, a, it's it's way too big of a risk for him. He's at no no one's expecting him to fire Adazio right now. You're expecting one season and then to have a short leash with Adazio. So we'll see if that happens. But yeah. anyway, it'll it'll be good to judge uh, the job that Jarman's able to do. Um, you know, yeah. a year from and now he's, and see, he's and see like I said, going. he he's apparently very active in. The alumni community, mm-hmm. very responsive to emails mm-hmm. and questions. Which is great. I say we try to get him on. I say we definitely try to get him on. I don't on. think and he'll do it. But I don't think he will, but you never know. Never know. Never I say know. we shoot him an email and see what happens. Yeah. And, uh, and he's also a former D1 college athlete. He played basketball at UNC Wilmington. So not that that's anything crazy, but it is it is being a former student athlete, I think, helps with, with the relatability of – Couldn't you know, hurt. One, one of the quotes from either – I think it was either Michigan State's AD or NC State's AD. Uh, one of their quotes had indicated like – this guy understands student life, student athlete life, and coaching requirements because he's been there. Like he understands that part of it. Good. So um, that certainly couldn't hurt. A lot of lot of good praise there. So, Martin Jarman, the new athletic director at Boston College. We'll see how that one goes. So, Two thumbs up. Ha- uh, happy so far. Great hire <laughs> for for the early outlook. Um, any other thoughts on BC update? Nothing else going on. Um, that's that's it. I did also hear um, he Martin Jarman is. Uh, let me find it here. Um, 
He is now the BC's highest ranking administrator of color. Okay. Um, which is good for a uh, college that's pretty homogeneous, kind of yeah. has a reputation for being like white and broy. Um, mm-hmm. So it's another just good, good thing for BC to kind of reach out and do. And especially he's so young and like brings a lot of energy. So yeah, super happy about it. Definitely. Alrighty, so A plus from from you heard here second uh, on the hire for Boston College, and that brings us into the second quarter, which uh, we have a special guest, a an awesome guest, an awesome I'm very guest. excited. And now on the podcast we have Nick O'Donnell, a partner at Sullivan Worcester, a law firm here in Boston. Um, Nick, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Thanks very much. I'm doing great. How are you doing? Doing super well. Are you? How are you feeling? Are you feeling excited? Are you are you nervous? What 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 are the vibes? I, I I'm very excited to be on the podcast. All right, very excited. So I think we've gotten past. Yeah, people aren't. People nervous usually anymore. say nervous, but I feel like they're kind of getting over that now. Yeah, they're excited now. It's great. <laughs> um, well, the reason we have you on today, Nick, is is obvious to us, but we'll we'll tell the listeners you have a super unique uh, area of law that you practice in, um, and I'm gonna do the very basics of. Art and museum law, so that's 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 where I come from, knowing exactly what you do. But I think you can probably tell us a bit more. And I guess the real question is, how do you get into art and museum law, and or what exactly does that mean? How like what what are the standard matters that you see? Sure. Well, I am, and I've always been as a lawyer, primarily a litigator, a commercial litigator. So I don't do criminal work, but I have been doing a lot of art-related work for several years because of some experiences I had actually a long time before I was a lawyer. I was an art history major as an undergraduate, mm. solid liberal arts experience, and I thought pretty seriously about going to graduate school and, and following a career in curatorial work. I worked out in Williamstown at the Clark Art Institute for a few years after I graduated from college. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to college out there. And I had a great experience there doing a lot of interesting things related mostly to exhibitions and collections management, but also got a little taste of some work that was gaining prominence at the time in the 90s related to not diluted art. Uh, the clerk doesn't have any, I'm happy to report, but <laughs> it, I was working there at a time when um, many museums, not all, but certainly some, were trying to take a look at their collections and determine if there were any ownership issues um, in their collections. Um, long way short of saying this, that by the mid-90s, people were becoming aware again of the issue of Nazi looted art in the sense that Things had moved around a whole lot and changed hands a whole lot without a whole lot of um, focus on whether they had been taken from someone or somewhere that didn't belong uh, in the 30s and 40s. So that was good timing on my part, I guess. Um, didn't end up being a curator, didn't end up going to graduate school for lots of reasons, but uh, did become a lawyer and, and enjoy it very much. And I got our art law practice off the ground, I'd say about six or seven years ago, trying to expand into some things like Nazi looted claim restitution litigation and other art business related uh, transactions and litigation, as well as combining some of the firm's uh, capabilities and practices already in areas like tax and nonprofit and that sort of thing. So, my art related practice encompasses a lot of different things. It's mostly litigation, 
A lot of it is litigation, again, just among folks in the commercial art market uh, who just have a dispute of some sort or another, whether it's a deal gone well or a deal gone bad, right, right. Uh, some copyright-related advice, um, a fair amount of one-off transactional work where people are buying or selling art and they're writing a contract or they're donating it to their favorite museum or their alma mater. And then uh, a pretty heavy subset of claims related to not diluted art right, right. And, so, and claims for restitution. Right. So, so you mentioned not diluted art's a kind of a subsection of your practice. So, uh, let's dive a little bit deeper into that. So, it obviously, sounds very cool. Um, so, what what exactly you know do do you do for types of cases like that? Are they as cool as they sound? <laughs> Nazi looted art. Well, it's they're very interesting, and of course, many of my clients are folks who's who's uh, you know, as with a lot of things in in law, I have to be careful about how I talk about my cases, not because of confidentiality, but because I find a lot of things about law and and litigation to be interesting but of course for my clients they're problems and so they're not True. interesting there <laughs> the problems they have to solve but look the, the question of how and whether art today should return to the families of folks from whom it was taken is very complicated and it involves a lot of different competing interests and a lot of historical understanding a lot of uh disagreement about about what ought to be done or whether anything ought to be yeah. But, you know, in a nutshell, the Nazis looted an almost unfathomable amount of art, both from private individuals, uh, German and Austrian Jews in the first instance, and then Jews and other people in the occupied countries. They took art out of German museums they didn't like and, and resold it on the international market. They plundered other countries' museums when they got there. So when the war was all done, there were hundreds and hundreds of thousands of objects uh, displaced from where they ought to be. And many of the people who owned it were dead and been murdered or had left and didn't care to return. Hmm. And the Allies took uh, the approach of trying to return that art to the country from which it had been taken, but not necessarily to look for the individuals or the particular institution from which it had been taken, uh, which has pluses and minuses, but that was partly because that was already a, a Herculean task. And, and they set up collection points in Munich and in Wiesbaden where they would process this art, and they interviewed lots and lots of uh, Germans and Nazis who had been involved in either the taking or in the cataloging of the art, many of whom uh, gleefully cooperated, many of whom told the truth, many of whom lied through the teeth. Yeah. And um, so that stuff got put back in a lot of different places, but the work sort of never really finished. And so when the Cold War ended and people started rethinking roles in Europe and, and kind of taking another look at World War II and, uh, in a lot of different ways, this issue came to prominence again, and people became aware that, that sometimes their families or their uh, ancestors might have had something that was taken from them. Hmm. Um, that, to, just to sort of carry it further, breaks down into a, a few different categories, but principally the cases involved those against private individuals or private museums here in the United States, because in the United States, most of our art is held. Uh, m most art museums are private, nonprofit institutions. They're not, they're not public museums. There, are, there aren't that many of those. Huh. And then against collections in Europe, which are largely state-run sovereign institutions and which ended up with a lot of the things that were returned after the war, but maybe uh, should have gone back to a particular group um so it involves a real dizzying array of, of 
Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going uh, on there. Understanding all those things as a lawyer, there's a lot of very complicated jurisdictional questions. The, the other big sort of theme, which I'll touch on, is and, and which causes a lot of controversy, is of course the passage of time. And most claims over property, you have a relatively short amount of time to file a claim, or it's barred by the statute of limitations. Hmm. Of course, I have grappled with that in a lot of different ways. That it's hard to summarize quickly. Uh, and the extent to which museums or foreign countries that have signed on to a series of principles that came out of a State Department conference in the late 90s, which is known as the Washington Conference, has been the subject of a lot of discussion, a lot of controversy. Congress did pass a law last year to create a uniform federal statute of limitations for these claims, which uh, has certainly created or looks like it will create a certain kind of uniformity, which I think uh, is is beneficial in a lot of ways. Uh, no matter who, who you're representing, it's always good to know what the rules are. Um, and uh, I'll add a footnote that in the year 2016, which I will not make any political comments about, but it is remarkable in the sense that the law passed Congress unanimously and was quickly signed by the president with really no opposition. So that was was a notable event in 2016. Well, speaking so speaking of 2016, um, I, I was doing some research when we were about to have you on, and there are a lot of issues that pop up that we don't even that we just kind of overlook because it's not really in our our normal everyday lives, but. I saw that you um, a few years ago commented on if Katy Perry owned the rights to Left Shark from the Super Bowl <laughs> performance. Yes. Um, and, yes. Then, and then also, so right now we're actually in the middle of, uh, I guess what you could call a legal debate over the Fearless Girl statue in Manhattan, um, and it's because uh, it's situated right across from the Charging Bull, which is a separate art installation, um, and it the argument and correct me if I'm wrong is that it changes basically the intent of the charging bull to, to something negative, uh, which it wasn't formerly. So where do you stand on that, or, or what have you heard from, from that debate? There's a couple things going on with the charging bull and the Fearless Girls sculptures. And one is critical in, in terms of art criticism and, and interpretation and understanding, and the other is legal. Okay. Now, from the, from the criticism standpoint, um, the Fearless Girl sculpture, which currently stands at the very tip of Bowling Green, which for anybody who hasn't been in Lower Manhattan recently, uh, sort of tapers into a, a traffic island and is, in, is right in front of the Charging Bull sculpture, which is the famous sculpture um, of a bull sort of contorted and, and coiled to charge forward. Um, that sculpture, incidentally, was created not with the permission of New York or of anybody in the financial services industry, but was delivered overnight. Uh, on Wall Street in 1987, um, so the, the sculptor, who's a man named Arthur DeModica, said at the time that this was his gift to New York as a symbol of resilience after the uh, recent stock market crash in October of 1987. And so that, that was sort of how he viewed the sculpture. So that and, technically and it was not. It was, so that sorry. wasn't supposed to be there then. That the charging bull. It was not supposed to be there. It was removed. So it, it showed up. It was removed by the city or by whoever's property it was. There was a great deal of discussion, and then by agreement, it was placed right at the top of Bowling Green, where it's been since, I think, 1990 or so. Hmm. Now, the Phyllis Girl sculpture showed up on March 8th of this year, which is International Women's Day, and it's a, a small girl with her hands on her hips, and she's placed directly in front of the bowl, staring defiantly at it. And it, and it has been interpreted and, and, I think, largely considered a, a direct uh, – intended as a direct rebuke to um, either – the financial industry or to the male domination of the financial industry or, or things like that. And, and it turned out the sculpture was commissioned by 
State Street Global Advisors as part of an initiative to increase representation of women on corporate boards of directors. Hmm. Now, this became a legal question or point of discussion when the artist, Mr. DeModica, uh, intimated that the fearless girl sculpture infringed his copyright or maybe his moral rights. Now, the truth is it does neither, and I don't think he has any claim that he could prevail on or even get very far with in court, but it's an interesting uh, case to illustrate the difference between these questions and the sort of uh, interpretive questions that are that are ripe for discussion. You know, copyright protects against copying, um, and no one's really saying that this sculpture copied the bull because it's not a bull. But really what, what the proponents of the charging bull are saying is that she's, she's standing there by virtue of stepping into the space and the message of the charging bull, and that that therefore draws on the meaning of the earlier work in a way that she needs permission to do. Now that is that is incorrect as a matter of law because whereas in something like literature, uh, if you write The Wizard of Oz, I can't write an opera about Dorothy without your permission because that's a character. You you control the right to make that derivative work. But with visual art, it's impossible to characterize it that way because visual art is constantly commenting on other works by virtue of either incorporating certain visual elements or just by juxtaposition and. So that, that, I think, falls flat. The other huh. really arcane area of this is that there is something called the Visual Artists' Rights Act of 1990, which very few people know about. And it is us, the United States' included. very limited... <laughs> Sorry? Us included. <laughs> uh, uh, it, it, it is the United States' very limited attempt at, at encompassing what are called moral rights, which are the, the right of the artist to control some aspect of his or her creation, even after... The work has left his or her possession. Now, in, in, in this case, Vera, as it's known, creates a couple important rights. One is the right of attribution, which is that if I make something and I sell it to you and you damage it sufficiently or, or degrade sufficiently that I think it uh, would be detrimental to my reputation or my work, my body of work, hmm. I can forbid you from selling it or displaying it as a work by me. You can, and and so that's a that's an you know an imposition on your property rights as the owner of that sculpture. Yeah. The other is the right, what's called the right of integrity, which is a again gives the artist the right to protect or or to stop the destruction of a work of recognized stature. Now, what that means has been much discussed. Um, if, if you look at the legislative history, it was not intended as a high bar of uh, real importance. It just sort of meant something other than junk. Uh, and if that's the case, then I have the right to, to have you enjoined or stopped from destroying the work of art or moving it if it can't be moved without, without violating it. Here, too, just to bring the point to a close, I don't think that works for the Charging Bull sculpture either. One, because the sculpture predates 1990 when the law was passed, and unless the sculptor still owns the sculpture which is possible, then the law doesn't even apply in the first place. Um, but the other is his work hasn't been damaged, right? The, the yeah. Conceptual infringement, a, a, a critical interaction, is not, is not the distortion or mutilation that the statute contemplates. It's really talking about the physical integrity of the object. Huh, right. um, so, so this has all just been in, in, in the news, and, and uh, the sculptor held a press conference the week before last, 
suggesting that he intended to do something about this and he, he was there with his attorney. Um, as far as I know, no lawsuit has been filed. Um, and I don't know if it will be, but it's uh, been in the news. But it's an interesting an interesting moment, and public art is really interesting in the way that it provokes strong feelings and uh, gets people talking about what ought to happen in public space and what public space means and who controls the meaning of public space. Um, and I will just close by saying that I was in New York last week, and I took my daughters down there, and they loved it. So. <laughs> nice. Well, very interesting uh, story there surrounding all of that. Um, so – Want to play a game? Play yeah. A game? Do, you, do you think – so are you ready to put all this knowledge to the test is the question. <laughs> I'm ready to put all this knowledge to the test. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And hopefully not embarrass myself. <laughs> I don't think you will. Um, so we have a game for you. you you're a long-time listener, first-time caller. So this is <laughs> – you are going to play Know Your Tens. Um, we have an art-slash-museum-themed Know Your Tens just for you. I, I want to say I don't think it's too hard. For someone in your practice, but I've said yeah. that before to other people. It, it, yeah. yeah, so it, who knows? So, um, Derek, run run through the rules of the game, and then then we'll play the. Uh, actually, let's kick off kick off with the song. Yeah, let's, kick do, off, that. let's, let's do that. We gotta do get that in the first. mood. Get in the mood. So know your tens, as Steve mentioned. We have a list of uh, – actually, I'm going to let you introduce this because you put it together. Okay, so. I put it together. Yeah. So um, the rules are simple. You, you've listened before, but for the, uh, anyone who hasn't, you will get 15 guesses to guess the top 10 of this category. Um, if you get a question right, you will hear this sound. If you get a question wrong, you'll hear this sound. Um, and we will keep you posted as it goes. Um we expect – I said when we were chatting off, off the podcast, I said 5 out of 10 was definitely doable. So that's that's the bar we're going to set for you, Nick. How does that sound? All right. A lot of pressure. All right. All right. So you're Know Your Tens. Can you name the top 10 most visited museums in the world by annual visitors from 2016? And this is according to CNN and Artists Network. Top 10 most visited museums. Okay. In the world. I will say one, the Louvre in Paris. The Louvre in Paris. Can I see the Louvre? That is correct. That is number one, and it's 7.4 million uh, annual visitors. Is that what that, That's that, what what that means? Is? Annual visitors. All righty. So you are one for one. Okay. One for one. Uh, I will say the British Museum in London. The British Museum in London. Also correct. That is number five on the list with 6.4 million annual visitors. So two for two. Good start. Okay. How about the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York? Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Another one, three for three. Right, three for three. You've now that so is, that's number four on the list. So you've gotten one, three. Well, you've gotten one, four, and five. So you're three for three, and you've gotten one, four, and five. Definitely a hot start. Okay. Um. After that. I would say the National Gallery in Washington, D.C. The National Gallery in Washington, D.C. Can I see that one? Correct. That is number nine on the list with 4.26 million visitors. Four for four to kick us off. All right. You're getting through all the, you're getting through all the, <laughs> the standard ones, so get the easy ones out of the way. Um, 
And I know the British Museum is on here, but these are museums, right? Not necessarily art museums. Correct. Okay. Then I would go from there, in keeping with our nation's capital, I'll say the Air and Space Museum. The Air and Space Museum. Can I get that one? Correct. Correct. So we lumped together the Smithsonian Natural History and Air and Space Museum. So that's number three on the okay. list. Uh, 6.9 okay, million so. viewers. So you are officially, you're cruising through, you're five for five. That is, you've so that takes all the Smithsonian's are now off the board. Correct, and you've you've already <laughs> hit you've already hit the lowest number on the bar, so I think you're you're totally set. Just hit one more, and you've you beat the pace. <laughs> yeah. um, so all right. Let me tell you. What, um, let me let yeah. me run through what Go you ahead. got. Uh, you've got the Louvre at number one, the Smithsonian um, Air and Space and Natural History Museum. So both Smithsonian's are off the board at number three. Number four, the Met. Number five, British Museum, and number nine, National Gallery of Art. Okay. How about the Uffizi in Florence? The Uffizi in Florence. Can I see that one? No that luck. is Ooh. not top ten. All right. No so love for the Renaissance. <laughs> <laughs> so you fit your well, first. That's a, that's a real failure of classical education in this country today. I'll tell you that. No, I'm <laughs> Ooh, it rattled my confidence. Um, <laughs> that's that's good. Mix it up a bit. Uh, okay, how about the Vatican Museums in Rome? The Vatican Museums, can I see them? Correct. That is number six on the list with six million visitors annually. Back on track. All right. So you're now six for seven. You've gotten the numbers one, three, four, five, six, and nine. So you're still missing two, seven, eight, and ten. Okay. Um... How about the Art Institute of Chicago? Say it again. The Art Institute of the Chicago? The Art, Art Institute of Chicago. Can I see the Art Institute of Chicago? Ooh. No luck with Ooh. that one. That one's not top 18, if you can believe it. Dang. Yeah. Well, that's a shame, too. <laughs> so, so six for eight. Six for eight. Nice. Also, when you get to 10 guesses, only your yep. misses count towards... Um, so your correct guesses won't count towards the misses. So you basically have five guesses after ten. You'll get five misses after ten. So if you get something correct, it. it doesn't count against your your guesses. Got it. Okay. All right. Um, what about what about the German ones are tough because they're all kind of spread around. But I would say – well, I guess one of my questions is – I'll have to guess. But I'll say that the – no, I don't think that's going to work. You I'll got say the National Gallery in Berlin. The National Gallery in Berlin. Can I see that one? Ooh. No luck. Uh oh! All right, six for nine. You're you're you were setting a hot pace, but you're slowing down. <laughs> I'm listing, yeah. I'm struggling with what number two is going to be. Number two. So um... number two's interesting. That that's my hint. Is I could not get a, an accurate estimate of the number of visitors, but it's estimated from between seven million people and twenty million people per year. Because there are no accurate estimates that's from this from this place. Okay. If that's a hint. 
No accurate estimates of the museum. That's some solid security that they've done. So it technically could be the number one museum by over double, almost triple. But right, right, right. Hmm. How about the Pinacotech in Munich? Let's see. Can I see that one? I don't see it. Nope. No. All right. Six for uh, ten. The Hermit, how about the Hermitage in uh, St. Petersburg? Hermitage in St. Petersburg. Can I see that one? That one's correct. There we go. Back on track. That's right. number 10. Number 10 on the list with 4.1 million visitors per year. So you, you're still missing number two, number seven, and number eight. You're, offici number eight. you're officially seven for 10. You've got five, okay. five misses left, or until you start taking too long, we have to buzz you for time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. I'll get it. Um, what about the Acropolis Museum in Athens? Ooh, the Acropolis in Athens. Can I see that one? Incorrect, but that was number 19 on the list. Uh, yes. So in the top twenty. Here, I'll give you. I'll give you another hint. It's probably not a helpful hint, yep. but the last three, none of them are in the United States. So you're looking. Yeah, I feel like I'm. I feel like I. I, I feel like I tapped the well of. Uh, of U.S. museums. What about the. What's it called? <laughs> You're gonna have to help and us out. Shot the the is it the Palace Museum in Beijing? Palace Museum in Beijing. Can I see the Palace Museum in Beijing? Correct. That is correct. That is number two. That is number two on that's the list. Two. Yep, the forbidden. Yep, so that's the Forbidden City. Estimated okay. seven, estimated at seven million to twenty million people per year, and I guess it should be obvious why we don't get a lot of information on the visitors to the Forbidden City. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. All right, so how many wrong answers do I have left? I think you have four you strikes have left. Right? Four strikes left. You are you have four strikes left. Yep, you have eight correct. You're missing number seven and eight. Seven and eight. Okay, what about the Musée d'Orsay in Paris? The Musée d'Orsay in Paris. Correct. That's Ooh. number fourteen, <laughs> just outside. Number fourteen on the list. Hey, you're you're getting closer. <laughs> How about we'll keep it we'll keep it French. How about the Sandra Pompidou? No luck again. All right. <laughs> Striking out. All right. I'm breaking up with I'm breaking up with France. <laughs> All right. Um, eight for thirteen. There two strikes left. Two, two strikes, strikes left. left. Two strikes. Left. I think you're so. I think I, I would definitely not get these two, but I feel like you're going to be upset when you hear them. It's like one of those type situations. <laughs> Undoubtedly. Yeah. Um, the Victorian Albert Museum. Victorian Albert Museum in London. Can I see that? Oh. Just outside again. Number twelve. You're getting closer. <laughs> twelve. V and A. <laughs> Help me out. 
<laughs> All right. It's in London too. So usable. You have one incorrect guess left. Um, Derek, okay. are there any other hints we can give him or should give him? I don't know. You know. I feel like you're super close to them anyway. I feel like your next guess might get one, but if we give you a place, you'll get it. That that's how you operate with yeah. with museums. So I can't do that. Although there are two, <laughs> there are two for the location of number seven. There's there's another one at thirteen on the list. So yes, maybe it's worth giving that hint. Okay. So Wait, say, that, say that again. For number seven, which I don't have, is the same as number thirteen. It's the same. It's, 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 it's no, in the it's, same place. It's, it's, in this, it's so it, just give them the place. We, right. We've already given. All so, right. So there's one of these two museums you're going for is in London. Okay. London. All right. So it's not the V&A. I've already got the National Gallery and the British Museum. Then it's not the National Portrait Gallery. How about the Tate Modern? The Tate Modern. Can I see the Tate Modern? Correct. <laughs> nice. Made Woo. good use of the hint. Yes. The so the, Somerset House was the other museum on the list. That is number thirteen. So I was not going to get that. <laughs> well, you got you got the right one. So all you have left, with one incorrect guess left, is number eight. And yep, I want to confirm. All right, yeah, you. It is going to be difficult. <laughs> Confirmed. Number number eight. <laughs> number eight. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure I wasn't doubling up on one, but yep, you are. You're good to go. Four four point six million visitors. Number eight. This number is probably this is probably the hardest one on the list, I think. Okay. So I have no idea. So I will plug my old. Stomping grounds, and I'll say the Sterling and Francine Clark Art Institute in Wilkesdale, Massachusetts. All right, <laughs> there we go. Good plug. <laughs> and with my head held high. <laughs> yes. Very good. No luck, unfortunately. So the last one is the National Palace Museum in Taipei. Um, oh, in, interesting. Yes, in Taiwan. So that gets 4.6 million visitors per year. I will also run you through 11 through 18, just because I feel okay. like you'll appreciate that. Um, number 11 is Reina. Oh, I'm going to murder these names, by the way. They're not going to be correct. Um, actually, just this one. Reina Sofia, Madrid. Mm-hmm. Number, yep. number 11. Number 13 was Somerset House. Number 16 was the MoMA, 3 million visitors per year. Oh. Number 17 was the National Museum of Korea, Seoul. Um, and a bonus, okay. bonus question for you. So based on, let's say, the National Gallery of Art in D.C. gets 4.2 million visitors per year. How many visitors wow. within 0.5 million, within 500,000, do you think the Muse- Museum of Fine Arts in Boston gets per year? Uh, per year, I would guess uh, two and a half. Two and a half. Can I see two and a half? <laughs> 1.5 million viewers, so just outside that uh, 500,000 range. Just um, at the margin of error. There you go. Well, hey, nine, nine – Correct is not yeah, bad at all. That's and, great. and with very few hints, I feel like I would have gotten maybe two or three on this yeah. list. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, Nick, any parting thoughts for any uh, artists or, or people interested in the world of art, any museums that we have to see, or anything you would recommend as a final thought? Uh, can I do a shameless plug? Yes, absolutely. That's our favorite kind. So I have just written a book. All right. Um, about... Nazi looted art litigation and disputes. Uh, it is called A Tragic Fate 
Law and Ethics in the Battle Over Nazi Looted Art. Um, it will be out in June. It is available on Amazon now for pre-order if you're interested. And it's uh, it's intended uh, for folks who find the subject interesting as well as for lawyers and scholars who might want to deeper dive into the details of some of these disputes. But my hope is certainly that people who find the arc of this issue to be interesting, uh, that will be accessible and, and interesting. So nice. Excellent. Nice. That is my plug. That's the best plug we've had in our history, I think, <laughs> yeah, as a probably. podcast. I, I think so. That's the that's most high real praise. That's the most realistic plug at least. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> awesome. Well, Nick, thank you so much for being on. Super, super interesting conversation. I'm I'm really happy you came on and um glad you enjoy listening, but uh, it's always fun to get listeners <laughs> on the podcast. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Cool. Well, Alrighty, thanks, Nick. Uh, next coffee's on me. <laughs> All right. All right, talk to you soon, Nick. Thank you. All right. So thanks again to Nick for joining us on a very interesting segment. A yeah. Good, good interview and a good performance on Know Your Tenants. Certainly one of our most informative segments. Yeah. I don't think we've ever given that much information out to our listeners, no. so you're very welcome. Yeah. You heard It's now you heard it here first. Yeah. Bro- I think we're yeah. breaking news yeah. for our listeners at we least. We talked on about there. ourselves being like class at one point. That was like class. Yes. Like history Finally. Class. Yeah. Yeah. So Nick, thank you very much for being on. Nine out of 10 is... Top right. three, for yeah. sure. We've only had one person get 10 out of 10. Yeah. Um, few people get 9 out of 10, but that's one of the better performances in Know Your 10. So. For sure. Well done overall, Nick O'Donnell. And buy the book. Why not? Yeah, go, yeah, go for it. A real, yeah. real plug. Yeah, tragic fate. <laughs> um, all right, so that brings us to quarter number three, which is pop culture. Try to go through these pretty quick, but I'm going to let you handle uh, the two topics we have here. I'll handle them both. All right. Um, just quick hitters in pop culture this week. Bill O'Reilly is out at Fox News. Uh, over multiple sexual harassment scandals, paid out over $13 million in um, settlements over, the, over, over his tenure there, immediately joins the podcast game as direct competition to You Heard It Here Second. Yes, yes. Um, so that's, that's unfortunate for us as there's a whole, <laughs> uh, as there's a whole new uh, mega giant podcaster the market, out there. But it's okay. I, yeah, I don't think he's really our niche market, he's what he's not, going for, yeah, but yeah. still – there's no, a, there, you never know. I mean, you never know. Listener, there's only 24 hours in a day. It's and, true. And that's the maximum that any one person can listen to podcasts. It's true. And now Bill O'Reilly is competing in that space. Yes. So, for at least an hour. For Yeah. For however long his podcasts are, I assume an hour, he's competing with us yeah, now. So. That, that's one... That's one hour that people have another choice to listen yeah, to. So I'm sure he'll get picked up by another major news station. Uh, there's a lot more uh, news networks out there that have... Uh, less qualms with with hiring someone like Bill O'Reilly, especially if they're going to make him that much money. Right. Um, but next on pop culture, uh, some just something I've found: um, Larry David, um, producer of Seinfeld and Curb Your Enthusiasm, um, his daughter has written a uh, sort of like a Curb Your Enthusiasm for millennials. There's only five episodes right now. It's called Eighty Sixth. It's a YouTube series. Her name's Cassie David, and it is hilarious. And this is definitely you heard it here second because there's only about 100,000, 200,000 views on each episode. Um, and it is super dry, super just – you like people just sitting together saying what they actually are thinking rather than, than having normal conversations. So if you like Curb Your Enthusiasm, if you like Seinfeld, and you're a millennial or at least you understand pop culture now, um, it is so funny and so relevant in today. It's just – Derek hasn't seen it yet. I tried to get him to watch it before the podcast. He, yeah. didn't, he didn't have time, but um, I highly recommend it. It's called 86th. You just go on YouTube and type it in, and there's five episodes. They're about 10 minutes long tops, um, and they're very funny. So um, 
86 to check it out. Those, right. those are my only pop culture hits. Yeah, that's it. That's all, that's all yeah. we have. It was yeah. a quick little section. Um, but keeping it going uh, in the pop culture world. So uh, anything else? Are you ready to move to sports? I'm ready to move to all sports. Right. We still don't have the little uh, indicator. The, like, yeah, we talked about it. I tried to look some up. We'll, we'll get it soon. We like need a, to, even just like, if, a ref, if, like a whistle. If anyone's like a, got like a – yeah, even just a whistle would be fine. A referee yeah, whistle. that's true. A referee, maybe that's all we'll do next time. Maybe a whistle and like – just find one tackle sounder. I mean, I couldn't find a good. I have. I've been looking I'll for a good it. tackle. I'll do sound. it. I'll find it. Find like three, th- three YouTube video clips, and I'll I'll put them together. Okay. So, um, so sports. Uh, let's just we'll just jump into it. We got basically we got NBA, we got NHL, both in their playoff seasons, and then we have the NFL draft. We'll have a couple quick hitters on it. So let's start NBA. Obviously, a lot of action going on in both the NBA and the NHL playoffs. Um, we'll start in the East. Uh, on our TV right now, we have the Hawks and the Wizards. Um, that series is two to one. Uh, right now, the Wizards leading. Atlanta is trying to tie that up uh, two to two, going back to Washington, and keep that in a series as opposed to being three to one. I don't know. Do you have anything to touch on in this Wizards series? Um, I don't only, have a lot. only that John Wall is back. John Wall is um, definitely so back. So he was. He's always been a star in the league. Yeah. Uh, but he's always been hidden under about five to ten people that are better than him or have at least more star power than him. Um, and he is playing out of his mind. This postseason, he looks really good. He's making plays that y- you knew he could make. He just wasn't getting the recognition for it. Mm-hmm. Now he's playing out of his mind. I I don't think it's enough for him to carry the Wizards team too much, especially considering the other uh, f- the rest of the teams in the field. So, um, if you haven't watched any Wizards game, I would recommend giving it a shot because John Wall is playing out of his mind. Yeah, definitely. And they have a great backcourt uh, with Wall and Beal. Uh, the rest of the team a little bit behind. There's a little bit of nonsensical crybaby. Insults being thrown Stupid. around. Stupid. So um, dumb. That's the only other. Also, I hate the Hawks. <laughs> the Hawks. I, I, the Hawks aggravate me. As they well. are. They are. They are underperforming. Uh, They're just one of those teams that you yeah. want to root for, and you've wanted to root yeah. for them for too long. Yeah. And well, finally, yeah. they just never make you happy. Yeah. The, I, I have. I have separate reasons for not liking them because the Celtics have always had trouble with them. Yeah. Uh, I. You, we were talking off air before the podcast. Uh, Dennis Schroeder is a very polarizing character. I like I, him. I don't like him, but that's mainly I like his because hair. of rivalries. His his hair is interesting. Um, but yeah, so either they are a very pesky team that that draws out bad blood. Yeah. Well, in, they in have other teams. they have the the pieces of a good team. They yeah. have some three point shooters. They have yeah. Dwight Howard, who's a great defender. Yep. They have um, Schroeder, who's a great. Paul a really good. Paul Millsap's too. a great mid. They have the pieces. They just never really put it together, yeah. and they're not really a cohesive team. So you kind of yeah. you love rooting for them, but they never never put it together. Yeah, so. exactly. So. So that's that series in the East. Uh, we have the Cavs finishing off a sweep of the Pacers. Um, I would say relatively expected. I think some people thought the Pacers could take a game or two yeah. at home. The only thing to take from that, I think, is the you don't have to worry about it's, the Cavs. Yeah, I mean, people were yeah. worrying about the Cavs. Well, you don't have to worry about. Yeah, the Cavs. Yes and no. I, well, I would I would say the Cavs self, other teams put everything worry, yeah. to rest. I mean, so the Cavs. Some of the Cavs issues that we're being talked about are still somewhat relevant. Their defense still doesn't look great. Um, <laughs> I, I mean. Did you see that Kyrie Irving and Kevin Love didn't play in the fourth quarter no. of one of those wins? They essentially didn't play down the stretch. Darren Williams played 12 minutes in the fourth quarter along with LeBron. Yeah. It was like old school LeBron carrying everybody without Kyrie and Love playing <laughs> that way. That is a concern to me because yeah. because that can't happen against Golden State if, if they get there no. again. You know, for as much as – I mean, you know, my, I don't like LeBron and we all know that, but LeBron is completely dominant. He is not dominant enough to beat Golden State by himself. We learned that already. Yeah. Two years ago, he couldn't do it. Last year, he just needed a little help from Kyrie and, and Kevin Love, sure. and he could do but, it. But for the immediate, for the immediate for the, reaction, yeah. 
Nothing is a threat all, to them all, until exactly. all is well. Uh, I mean, I'm still even I can't say that they they have a serious threat, including the Celtics. But I would say the Celtics are their biggest possible threat, uh, and that's not for another another round after this one. So yeah. the Cavs have nothing to worry about right now. Um, the Celtics, meanwhile, for a couple games looked like they were going to be a threat to nobody, including Chicago. Uh, including but they, like. Our NBA, <laughs> our, our, our pickup games on Saturday. <laughs> um, games one and two, absolutely terrible for the Celtics. But uh, they, so they lose both games in Boston. Um, the team and their best player dealing with a lot over the last couple of weeks. Yes. Um, Isaiah Thomas having his younger sister die in a car crash the day before game one uh, of that series. So really, just I mean, still still played very well. Play, I mean, he's, I, he's that's, been there. That's obviously, yeah, beside the point, but definitely beside the point. And, and I mean, it's beside the point. But to me, it's one of the most remarkable points of the entire thing is that is when you step back and actually look at what's going on game by game. You can say, "Wow, that's impressive!" Wow, that's impressive. To step back and look at the fact that he hasn't missed a game in this series and has still been their best player, um, despite what he's been dealing with, is really. I mean, for me, it's unfathomable that for a person to do that. Um, so, you know, very inspiring the way that he's played. The team was very uninspiring rallying around him in games one and two. But uh, they come back. They make a lineup change uh, for game I three. I saw that. Uh, Gerald? Very, very unconventional. Um, Playing out of his decision. mind. Gerald Green turns into Kobe Bryant in game three. Yeah. Um, but, but, I mean, very interesting because Brad Stevens was taking a lot of heat after game two for being down 0-2 as a one seed to the Bulls, obviously, and not being able to figure out Robin Lopez. Robin yeah. Lopez is was the one killing this team. And uh, very – I mean, it's really interesting. I, I won't go into too much detail on it, but the, the change they made to handle Lopez was going small. I mean, going with a smaller lineup is not uh, intuitive to solving your rebounding problem uh, on the surface. It doesn't seem that way. Um, but what I had been reading was that uh, – Really, the answer they were looking for was by going small, putting Gerald Green into the starting lineup, which, again, Gerald Green was a shocker. Like People didn't yeah. expect it to be him. It might have been Marcus Some Smart, Jalen Brown. I, I guarantee a lot of people forgot he was in the league. <laughs> yeah, a, a lot of people did. A lot of Celtics fans, like, like this is – Gerald Green didn't play for a lot of this year. Like, to non-Celtics fans out there, this is as surprising to Celtics fans as it was to everyone else. Gerald Green hasn't been a part of the equation. Um, but by going with Gerald Green in the starting lineup, what it did was it shifted Al Horford to playing center which he doesn't play center, really. Amir Johnson generally was starting at center, and, and Johnson's been sort of phased out now in this series. Yeah. Um, but what it did was that Horford is now on Lopez. So, A, I think Horford's your best bet at trying to box out Lopez, who, for all the jokes and comics, L Robin Lopez is a very good offensive rebounder. He, he actually That is yeah. that is he's, the strong point of his he's game. Pretty um, he's, he's he's like, not, he's he's like pretty dumb. He's not a like very good – He's like an oaf. Yeah, he's, he's like a big, big – yeah. he's huge. He's just like – he's just bulk, you know, and like he's he is got a good like offensive rebounder. He's got eyes that like kind of point opposite directions. Yeah, um – but so what it did essentially was on the defensive side, it at least put Horford on him, who's your best bet to be able to body with him. And on the offensive side is the bigger deal, I think, in that Horford is a, a three-point shooter in, in, in some sense now. He, he shoots the three respectably well. Um, and so what they've been doing a lot more is keeping Horford out high, having these pick-and-rolls with, with Horford and Isaiah, and now Robin Lopez is away from the paint, which All is right. exactly what you want. So let me ask you the, so. the hardest question. And I know how you're going to answer, but I want, I want to hear it anyway. Okay. Rondo doesn't get hurt. With a 2-0 yes. lead going back to Chicago, do the Celtics win this series? So, so I so I still think yes. Um it's a lot tougher. You know, so like, you know, Rondo goes down, I now was expecting them to win games 3 and 4 in Chicago, which would have been a lot to expect had he still been playing. Um my only thing that I will say is that Rondo had a phenomenal game too. 
he, he that was vintage Rondo. He almost had a triple double. Unbelievable. Yeah. It's but before it's, you say before you say it, um to counter that, it's not how well Rondo's played or how well he doesn't play. Mm-hmm. It's how poorly they the backups no play. They got no they one else. No one they have else no other him. point guard to even step in at exactly. all. So that is a definite factor. Um you know, so so the that's for sure. Like, like I, I can't say it with a lot of confidence. I can't sit here and be like, oh, yeah, no, Rondo injury doesn't mean anything. Like, that injury was huge. Um, but what I will say is that Rondo was not very good this year. No. <laughs> like, Rondo no. Rondo came out of nowhere <laughs> in games one and two. And so, you know, it is a little dangerous to assume that was just it. Like, oh, well, old Rondo's back. Like, now he's going to carry the Bulls to the Eastern Conference Finals, you know. So um, the Celtics made an adjustment with, you know, Robin Lopez was a key I don't associate Robin Lopez's dominance with what Rondo was doing, for mm-hmm. example. So I think that the Celtics fixed a lot of things going into game three. So obviously I'm a little bit biased, but I would say yes, that they can still win that series if Rondo didn't get hurt. Obviously a huge, um, huge advantage given when he did get hurt. Because, yeah. the, you know, and, and it's not like you said, even just the loss of Rondo, but Jerry and Grant, Michael Carter-Williams, Cameron Payne, these guys are bad. Canaan, <laughs> like they're, they're whoever just, that guy was, Canan. Isaiah Cannon's Kanan, now. They're going to start for them. He's oh, going to start for them next he game. Was so, he's, he, I, he's, I was the watching, best, he's the best option. I was watching guys. that person, and it's like, that person doesn't deserve to be in the NBA. He's, I saw that. I that, said the that. The sad thing is that he's the best choice out of it's those so guys tough. that we just named. Cameron Payne, like, but I, I was seeing like when they traded – the Bulls traded Taj Gibson and Doug McDermott for Cameron Payne to the Thunder. Like the stupidest trade I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. And Cameron Payne was like – by advanced metrics, like the worst basketball player in the league. I remember seeing like a tweet about it. He <laughs> yeah. was like among players that have played a certain amount of minutes. He was like the worst player in the league. So, yeah, I mean, certainly I think more so than what they lose with Rondo, it's what they have to fill in with as far yeah. as just having a ball handler. They don't even have a ball handler yeah. at this point. Um, so. If you're asking me, I would not be surprised if Rondo came back in this series. I wouldn't either. Uh- Rondo, for as much as Celtics fans can hate on Rondo for some things – uh, Rondo is a warrior. He's a gamer. Ron- Ronder, Rondo dislocated his elbow in a playoff game, played the rest of the game. He played. He's played with a torn ACL in a game. He wants – That guy is nuts. I told you I the mean, story about him losing yes. in Connect Four to a child yes. and then going on to beat that child ten times in <laughs> <Yes>. a row. <laughs> yeah. Rondo is nuts, and, and he's a very competitive, and he's very tough. Like, yeah. you can't take those things away from him. So I would not at all be surprised if he attempted to play a game. They've already said he's out in game five. Game six, I would not be surprised at yeah. all if he went out there and literally played one-handed. He's done it before in the past. Anyway, as of right now, we both have Celtics winning the next two win games. The yeah. I don't think they'll lose another game. Yeah. Uh, the last game in the East, Raptors-Bucks. Very, very fun yeah. teams to watch. Going to be great moving forward. This playoffs, I, I don't think they'll make a splash past the, this round. Uh, I mean, they're matched up on Cleveland Exactly. Way. So yeah. either way, Greek Freak looks really good. The Raptors are still pretty young and up and coming, so yeah. both teams are will, fun to watch. But. I will say, I will say that I think that both of those teams. Can, I, I actually think they could push the Cleveland to six games, but I don't think that they can. I don't think they have a realistic chance to beat them. I think Cleveland's got enough vulnerabilities that these two teams, like Giannis, is just ridiculous. ridiculous. I mean, he, he's an absurd player. I like that he's finally. I mean, he got yeah. some recognition last year, but yeah. now he's just he's, he's going to be a yeah. superstar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I think they could they could push Cleveland, but they can't actually contest them. Yeah, and I hate the West, so let's cruise through the West. <laughs> sure. Uh, Warriors are going to sweep the Trailblazers. Yeah, that's no, not a yeah. problem. Disappointing. Um, disappointing. I will disappointing. Say. Portland had a twenty point lead in Game Three. Clippers, Jazz, also irrelevant. Blake Griffin's um, out for this Blake Griffin's out season, which is the most Clippers thing I've ever seen. Ever. <laughs> it's the worst. It, it's so it's, predictable and it's stupid. It's time to move on from Blake Griffin. The Jazz, unfortunately, are one of those teams all, similar to the Bucks. 
they just don't have enough to yeah. get over the hump. Um, Spurs, Memphis is probably the best. It's the best series. Series West. so far, yeah, tied two say. to two. Uh, Spurs still take it, I think. I think uh, so Memphis too. has won on a last-second shot. They they have to really pull out all the stops to beat the Spurs. Yeah. And I don't see Pop losing in the first I round. Uh, yeah. I Ever. Don't, I don't see that. <laughs> <laughs> no matter what. I don't see that either. Uh, this LaMarcus Aldridge is not playing well for the Spurs, though. That, that That is one area of concern. Like, this was the guy that was supposed to replace Tim Duncan. Yeah. You know, so I mean, I he mean, played really well all season. Yeah, yeah. I'm did. sure it's he'll just a couple games. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure he'll be fine. And, and the Spurs are a machine. They just have to tune up their uh, – their their mechanics inside their robots and they'll be fine. Yeah. So, and then um, um, the last is obviously what we expected to be the best series, Rockets Thunder, which is yeah three I mean, three one Rockets, which is kind of expected. The series itself. They've been close games. They've been close. Yeah, I mean, they have been. Harden's been a, not. I don't want to say a non-factor. He's playing really well, but no, I mean yeah, this. They're yeah. not just blowing the. They're not shooting the no, lights out of the stadium. It's just a good basketball. Two good basketball teams playing against each other. Yeah. Russell trying to do everything he can. Yeah. James Harden doing enough. Um, so it's yeah, it's it, it's really a lot of what you've seen. Like during, I think it's a lot of what you've seen during the season. It's it's got it's made some storylines, but it's you know I, I I think people maybe didn't really expect it to be a super series as far as the teams go. It's really just the players, the individual players, and the and games one and two. I think they were putting up a, a pretty big stats, but then it sort of tapered off. I think. Uh, it, like Harden only, I think Harden only had 17 points or something in the last game. Um, Westbrook's been putting up triple doubles still. I, there, there have been storylines, but it's not maybe all that it was cooked up to be as yeah. far as. And there's still a few games left. So yeah, we'll you never know. Happens. You never know. Um, that's it for the NBA playoffs. I've still got Cavs Warriors as my final. You probably have Celtics Warriors as I yours. Mean, if I'm, I mean, I don't know. I'm gonna. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, pick a team. <laughs> pick a team from the West. Yeah. Uh, it's. No one's gonna beat the Warriors. I hate I hate that, but no one's gonna actually you know what? No, I'll say it's Rock, gonna be say Rockets. I'll say Rockets. Okay, I'll fine. say Rockets. Okay. Um then you're done. So and Celtics from the East. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Celtics okay. Rockets. No, it's, you know, it's, it's Celtics Warriors. Celtics Okay, Warriors. fine. Celtics Rockets. Um so that's it for the NBA. It, it the next few rounds are gonna be where the where the money's made. Uh yeah. it's just gonna be base it's almost gonna be like March Madness where all that really matters is an upset, not really yeah. teams not two powerhouse teams going at each other. Yeah. Uh, moving on to NHL playoffs. This is more your area, but we're already in uh, – second round is set. Yep. Um, not a ton to talk about from the first round except – I don't have I don't have a ton to talk about either. Um, except Nashville beating Chicago. So that was big. Sweeping them. Yeah. Nashville sweeping the Blackhawks is definitely the biggest storyline of the NHL playoffs uh, through one round. I mean, this is, th- this is not a Blackhawks team that was – like, like this isn't just the Blackhawks having the label and like people being like, like this isn't a case of like, oh, I thought the Blackhawks were still good. I guess they aren't. Yeah. No, they're still good. Yeah. The Blackhawks almost won the President's Trophy. Yeah. Um, they're the number one overall seed in the Western Conference. They don't. I think they only finished behind the Capitals as far as uh, best record in the yeah. NHL. This is a Blackhawks team that was still very, very good. And I, for whatever reason, then they were shut out through the first two games of the series, and they ended. I don't. I think they scored three goal, four goals in the whole series, maybe. Um. The Predators are apparently good. Um, now I, I knew that they were okay, but I still look at their team and I don't. They don't have any superstars, and you know I guess that's really the Isn't best. That, that's on the, the beauty. On their team? Yeah, yeah, Subban. Yeah, so I mean, I was thinking more like offensive superstars, but gotcha. um, but yeah, PK Subban's on them. Pekka Rene's great goaltender. Um, you know, so the Predators have they have a great team. It's uh, I guess this is really the beauty of the NHL playoffs in comparison to the NBA playoffs. Um, yeah, th- this can happen at any time. To the 
we're just, we're talking about the Blackhawks here, who are the second best team in the league. The Capitals are the first best team in the league, and five of their six games went to overtime yeah. against against the Maple Leafs, who were the last seed in the East. So um, it is very reassuring to see series like that in the first round. Um, on the other hand, you have you know sweeps like that going on, but um, but yeah, I mean that's I think for me that's definitely the biggest storyline. Uh, they'll the Predators will go on to face the Blues, who also swept the Minnesota Wild and were the uh, the lower seed in that series as well. Well, they so, won four one. Uh, oh, four one. Sorry, Almost. Minnesota won. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, St. Louis was the lower seed in that series as well, and they also uh, Nashville Predators versus the St. Louis Blues is such a weird matchup. Yeah, isn't that like so <laughs> unexpected? Predators and Blues. Yeah, Predators actually, the, Blues. the entire Western Conference is pretty. Uh, Weird. It's it's strange. Now it's the Ducks, Ducks are, Oilers. The, so the Ducks are gen are generally there. Uh, they're generally contenders. The Oilers are new here. The Oilers have not been contending in years. And beat the Sharks, who are usually and there. The Sharks usually get there and never end up sealing the deal. But the Sharks went to the Stanley Cup final last year. Um, the the Oilers are new that new here. The Blues are are generally contenders, and the Predators are hanging around. But all your mainstays are, have been knocked out in the West for, for teams that you see year in and year out. And however, on the East, we've got the standards. Ex- yes. We've got Penguins. Penguins versus Capitals, which will be a great series. Yep. Um, we've Rangers. got Rangers who are, who are always in it. Um, and then and this is the upset is, is Bruins losing to Ottawa, even though Ottawa was yeah. ranked above. I, so I, I'm going to talk more about the Bruins in my final drive, but okay. um, Ottawa's not very good. Um, I think the Rangers might sweep Ottawa, to be honest. Mm. Um I think that the Atlantic division was worse than the Metro division, you know, uh, wire yes. to wire this season. It was just a, an inferior division. You know that with the Lightning being in it. Yep. The, the teams in the Atlantic just did not have the years that the teams in the Metro had. Um, I think Ottawa was the outlier here. Columbus is really the next best team in this group, in this whole conference. And they had to, unfortunately, they dropped Pittsburgh in the first round with the way that the playoff bracket works now. Um, so I think that really the, the Cavs-Penguin series is the big one. That That's really that's who people are looking at as the cup contenders. I think the Rangers had a great draw, you mm-hmm. know, getting into the Atlantic division for the playoffs. And I, I think they're going to go to the, to the conference finals against whoever wins that penguin series. Yeah. And we've got, um, caps penguins are first games Thursday, right? Okay. So, yep. Game one is Thursday. So that's a big one. Who you got that's in that series? One. I've got the caps. I'm going to take the caps as well, but then I've got, I mean, I want, I'm not, caps. Gonna, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to pick the next, but yeah. I'm just going to pick caps over, over penguins. Okay. I'm going and, caps and Rangers are going to be that, advancing. That's what I've got too. Yeah. But then I don't want to pick beyond that. Right, right. By we, the, we can wait. We'll we wait till next week. Yeah, yeah. No need. Um, to pick and I've up. got. I'm gonna say Preds Ducks. I. That's what I was gonna say too. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> moving right along. <laughs> yeah, I want to disagree with you, but I, 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 I'm going Predators Ducks. So. Cool. All right. Uh, I think that's it for the NHL. Again, I'm gonna talk about the Bruins a little bit in my final drive. Okay. Anything else you want to touch on? That's it for the NHL. We also have one. Uh, I guess it's, so. It's. Uh, we're. I don't want to talk too much about the NFL draft. No, just I, make these quick I just hitters. mentioned that the NFL draft wouldn't be a thing if ESPN, if it didn't become a money making opportunity for yeah, so for the networks and for for blogs and for all this stuff, we probably wouldn't care about it, it that much. I, I would say I agree to the extent of like it wouldn't be a thing to to the mainstream sports audience. Yes. Like like I would still be looking at like draft stuff. Like yeah. I, I would I would still be interested to I see who care. my team's going to draft, who my team will exactly. be drafting. Not not who. So, so the dra- draft coverage has become draft insufferable coverage. as opposed to your become. team's draft coverage. It has become draft coverage. ESPN has done multiple, not one, multiple f- fake drafts. <laughs> like they've sat in a circle and put themselves on the fake clock. Yeah. And yeah. 
picked fake teams. Which is so dumb. F- Which picked is so, fake so, so players dumb. for their fake teams. It's so dumb. Fake players? Well, real players. Oh, okay. But like, yeah. pl- like they just. <laughs> imagine if they just made up players. <laughs> no. It, it's just so over the top. And no, yeah, it's crazy. But I, I think that's the thing is that it's. You're right in that if it wasn't so covered nationally, all that people would care about and all the people still care about right now is, is what their team is going to do. Yes. Local draft coverage is all that really should be needed. Why do – like I anyway, don't care about – We're already talking about Miles it too much. Garrett, <laughs> number one. Either way. The thing we do need to talk about is Jabril Peppers, uh, son of Julius Peppers, mm-hmm. all-star athlete, Gonna was definitely going to be a – well, not definitely, but most likely going to be a first-round pick. Yeah. Uh, Test positive for, quote-unquote, diluted sample which means uh, way too much water in that pee. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess that counts as a failed drug test in, it's, yeah, I in guess, the NFL. Yeah. Oh, um, in the NFL? Is that like suspension worthy in the NFL? Uh, I don't know. Or, okay. Either yeah. way, it's – It's it's a flag. It's, it's a, it, all, the, all the NFL teams got notified about this. Correct. Jabril Preppers, quote-unquote, failed a drug test. Reuben Foster, also for Alabama linebacker, also failed a drug test. That's how it's claimed. They both – tested positive for a diluted sample mm-hmm. which means they failed the drug test you can claim oh he drank they, they claim he drank eight to twelve yeah. bottles of water because he day. had to, yeah a day but or yeah for those couple days or whatever it just yeah. the dude just got caught so yeah. get get over it like sorry doesn't matter yeah. um i don't think teams care anymore I, teams so do not care about this kind of stuff i don't think they would care to the point of not drafting this guy i think I, they 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 care in a sense that it you I, see what happened to laramie tunsil yeah he yeah. he got caught smoking weed out of a gas yeah. mask but, minutes but, before the draft well, right, and dropped that, about three spots. But but the, but I think the minutes before the draft actually was to his advantage in that case because I think that teams would be they couldn't overthink it. Yes, I, I think if there was a week, teams might have been like, okay, let's look at some, let's look closer at some of these other O linemen and see if that we can take someone else. Either you know? way, I, I still don't think he drops more than I don't think he does. Either. I definitely doesn't drop out of the first round. If you're a first rounder and you get caught smoking weed, which is Basically legal yeah. in half yeah. the states in America. Yeah, you're. Yeah, I think you're fine. Yeah. You're gonna be okay. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, the league has super tight regulations, so oh, you yeah. kind of have to look at it that way. Yeah, like, oh, will he be most, suspended for things? But yeah, well, if, you wouldn't be suspended until you're in the league. Correct. So most of these teams have infrastructure in place where they should be confident that okay, this kid smoked weed in college. You'd like, think I, you'd think that that, yeah. <laughs> that that would be less prevalent, yeah. but. Um, something they have to consider, but I don't think it'll affect either of their yeah. um, draft stock. But either way, yeah, draft is this Thursday. First round is so it used to be a two day affair. Now it's a four day affair. So I think so three. I, thought, I think three days. I think it's their Sunday. Is it really? I well, thought. no. I think they take a day off. I think they take. A oh, day off. okay. Well, either there's there's three days of drafting. Either it's way, first, first round, then second, third, and then the rest. The draft starts but, Thursday, yeah. ends on Sunday, yeah. which is a lot of days for drafting. Yeah. It could be done. In a room in a day with yeah. the coaches, but instead it has to be on television. Yeah. It has well, the to... first round's the real reason. The, yes. fir- the first round's the real. They, and I'm not justifying it, but the first round is, they they make the first round this whole thing, and I hate it because, like, you sit through three hours and get through 32 picks. It's like, I, I actually, for me, if I if you were gonna tell me I could watch, I had to watch one of the draft days. I would watch day uh, round two three. Well, they're just cruising three. through picks. They're cruising through picks, but they're still relevant players. You know, rounds four through whatever. It's just they're doing all these stupid little segments on these people that got drafted in the first round anyway. And, like, they're just not even telling you about who's getting drafted in the fifth round, you know. Rounds two and three, they're actually still talking about the players, and they're cruising through them. So I think that's the most watchable day of the draft. Round one obviously has the highest impact, but it's just so unwatchable. It just takes so long between all these picks. So um, that's on Thursday, and that'll be – uh, that kicks off on Thursday and goes through the weekend. So, so that's something to look out for, and that's that's all I've got for sports. 
Um, you got anything else? No, no, I don't. You think final we drive. Be- we both have sports final drives. We do have sports final drives. So I- what are you going to say? I'm just going to decide whether I go first or second. Oh, I, I usually ask you. Do you want to go first or second? Um, this is a tough one. <laughs> what do you want to go? I, ooh, I don't know. If you don't really care, I'll go first. You I should guess. go first. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. I'll go first. So this is really picking up where we just left off with the NHL. I'm just going to do a little recap of the Bruins. Uh, series uh, loss to the Senators and ending their season. Certainly a disappointing ending. Um, the reason being that the Bruins really shot themselves in the foot in this series. The Bruins unfathomably took six delay of game penalties in this series for shooting the puck over the glass. Three of them in the thir- in the first period of game six that I attended yes- uh, yesterday. Yikes. Uh, three over the glass delay of game penalties in one period. So brutally frustrating di- lack of discipline for the Bruins. Um, also, a too many men on the ice penalty that literally was not the result of a change of lines. Just a sixth guy just jumped on the ice and skating around, like just like shaking your head, like what is, what are you doing? Um, they, the Bruins lost three games in overtime in this series, and all three were power play overtime goals due to two of two of which were stupid penalties by the Bruins. One of which was a controversial call. Mm-hmm. Either way, just disappointing. You know, no, I wouldn't say heartbreaking. You know, I've I've suffered some heartbreaking playoff losses before. This is not one of them. The Bruins were not a cup contender this season. Um, they had three of their top four defensemen injured for the entire series. Not many NHL teams are going to win a series in that situation. Um, but some of the bright spots, in fact, the biggest bright spot, Charlie McAvoy, who came straight from Boston University after their season ended, 19-year-old, was logging the most minutes of any Bruin in this series. He looked phenomenal. Great puck mover, just like... You know, I sent a Snapchat earlier in the week that Barry Mel- Barry Melrose had compared him to Bobby Orr. He said he's the next Bobby Orr. I was like, okay, we can pump the brakes on that. <laughs> yeah. But um, but he does look extremely promising. He'll be a regular next year, even just at 20 years old. So um, disappointing loss because they shot themselves in the foot. But overall, still pretty happy with the the way that they rebounded after the coaching change this year, getting into the playoffs, and have some you know some bright spots to look forward to with a lot of young players that are progressing. So there you go. There you go. Um, so my final drive is, and it, it recently came up because of, we've been watching more basketball, but this season, I don't know if it's more this season than, than normal, but the basketball foul where you run around a pick or run by someone, and as soon as they touch you, that's when you throw your arms up and, and pretend to be shooting, is ruining basketball. It's It's making basketball so hard to watch, especially in the third period when games are really tight and you're really excited you just want to see a great shot or you want to see a great play they're they're isoing these people like James Harden is is drawn Harden's the king he, he's the king that's of it his he, game. he has drawn three no he's drawn eight three-point penalties in four games doing that where it's not a three-point shot he runs around a pick and the guy runs around the pick with him and he throws his arms up like he's fouled and the refs can't do anything to to, to not call it so it needs to be reviewed. Isaiah Thomas does it all over the court. He does it whether he, whether he's in the paint or on threes. Russell Westbrook does it. Kawhi Leonard had an unbelievable amount of free throws in uh, the game versus Memphis. It is, it's changing the game of basketball and it's making it, it's rewarding bad offense, which I hate, and it's punishing good defense, which is even worse because it, it the NBA is already trending to insane numbers. People are averaging triple doubles, and it's not because he's shooting the lights out yeah, and he, he's yeah. making incredible plays. He's getting fouls. He's drawing enough fouls. And, and 
Isaiah Thomas is averaging over 20 points in the fourth quarter because people are tired, and as soon as they touch him, he fakes a shot yeah. and gets fouled. So it's it's changing basketball, and, and the rules need to be changed. I'm not sure exactly how. They tried to avoid it a couple years ago when Durant was doing they, it. They made the rule change for They that, made the rule yeah. change for it, and it's not helping. So they need to either well, reevaluate or uh, it just needs to be looked at yeah. again because the way these series are going, it's taking these superstar athletes and turning them into kind of like foul junkies, and it's not fun to watch. And it's I think it's going to eventually hurt basketball and hurt the product. So I don't like those fouls. I understand why it's done. It's the smartest way to play basketball, but it's so – against the nature of the game yeah. to, to just fake shots for free throws. Yeah. That I, I think it's simple. I think you give the referee discretion of if you – referee has the discretion to decide. If that wasn't a legitimate shot attempt, I'm not giving you a foul. Or it's not a shooting foul. So here's a question, too. Has the flopping rule – because they, they gave flop refs discretion on flops a few years ago. I haven't seen it implemented much. Exactly. So it, it is, if that's actually affecting the game, if players flop less or if they call fake flops more – then I would suggest implementing that too. But th- there's got to be yeah. something. I guess but that's, that's yeah, the logical yeah, next step. Yeah. But I think you I have mean, to. I'm picturing a ref, if Harden did that, and a ref just looked at him and shook his head and said, like, no, yeah. that, that wasn't it. You wouldn't shoot that ball. Exactly. Like, that's not your shot. Yeah, I think that would. I, I find it hard to believe he'd continue to do it. They're abusing but, you know. the system. All, all the top yeah. players in the league have found the loophole, and yeah. that's what it is. That's yeah. why. And it used to be the thing that Durant did until they changed that. And people don't do that anymore. So I think, I think a slight change can, yeah. can help. I don't mind the. Pump fake, someone jumps in the yeah, air, and you, nothing, you bump into them. This is completely that. different. Yeah. This is a, you're dribbling the ball. As soon as someone touches you, then you fake a yeah. shot. I don't mind if you fake a shot, someone jumps up, and then you actually take the shot. So either way, the the, the, the foul system needs to be looked at again. That's my final drive. It's a long one, but I'm pretty yeah. upset about it because <laughs> I like basketball, and I think it's, yeah. it's we'll, not doing We'll get to talk more about it because we're going to see more of Harden and probably more of Isaiah and probably more of Kawhi and all those guys in these yes, playoffs. So. and you'll see a lot of it. We'll Just watch any James Harden. And and if you plays. and if you see a, if one of these games is on ESPN, you will hear Van Gundy complain about it. Good. I've heard Van Gundy complain about it before. Um, Van Gundy's the best announcer, I think. Yeah. He gets it. So. All right, well, that's that. Long final drive. But, there we uh, go. It's okay. A little discussion. So that's it. It was a road trip. That was a road yeah, trip. That was a road trip. So uh, that's it for 61. Long episode, but it's okay. Uh, thank you to Nick O'Donnell, our excellent guest, 9 out of 10. Um, most visited art museums, very well done. Um, a Tragic Fate, Law and Ethics in the Battle over Nazi Looted Art. Comes out in June, but you can pre-order it on Amazon. Uh, and I'm going to do it. Why not? All right, let's do it. Cool. That's it. See you guys next week, right, 62. La- later days. <laughs>